On this week's episode of the Eldritch Lawcast, we're talking Fizzban's Treasury of Dragons, all the draconic treasures that are falling out of that book, and whether you need to include all of them in your game of Dungeons and Dragons, all that and more right now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Eldritch Lawcast, your new favorite tabletop RPG role-playing podcast. My name is Ben Byrne, and I'm here with James Hake, Dale Kingsmill, Sean Merwin. And Sean, if you could describe yourself using one of the D&D dragon types, what would it be? Are you an impetuous red, a, a conniving green, a chatty brass? I would say I'm more of a dragon turtle that got flipped over on its back and is just having a really rough time of it. Uh, just can't can't get myself uh, can't get myself sure, right. Yeah, I think we all we all feel that some days. Uh, what about you, Dale Kingsmill? Look, you described brass as chatty just then, and that saved me from having to call myself a conniving green. I'll take chatty. I'll take chatty any day. <laughs> <laughs> and James Hake, if you had to pick a dragon type, you'll find me as a bronze dragon, the coastal sea lover and obnoxious do-gooder. Okay, cool. That. That's, I didn't think of the bronze, actually. See, Dale, I would probably go brass as well. It's like my favorite dragon type just because they describe in the, the uh, monster manual burying people up to their shoulders in dirt just so they can have a conversation with them over time. Um, uh, we are a tabletop RPG podcast coming to you from YouTube or whether you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever. Um, and we're going to jump straight into the Ghostfire Gaming News, uh, which uh, is... Pretty quick this week, but just a quick uh, congratulations extended to the XP to level three uh, crew for their Kickstarter, the Questonomicon. Uh, the Kickstarter has closed now officially. I think they cracked something like three, uh, not not three, like 600,000 uh, pledges in US. So that's super exciting for them. It's a super cool little Kickstarter um, aimed at early level adventures, early level uh, dungeon masters. If you're getting into D&D for the first time, it's a really great resource um, and very customizable. Um, so go check it out uh, if you haven't already, just to just to see, I guess, at this point and pour at the window and, and, and be sad. Uh, I'm sure there'll be opportunities to grab it in the future. Um, uh, but moving right along uh, into more broad news for the tabletop RPG space, there was an unearthed arcana that was released recently, which is maybe worth quickly touching upon because it seemed to introduce a couple of uh, interesting races from throwback to, to ye old D&D, although not all of them were entirely throwbacks. Gif and, and what's the other one? Bicreen. The kind of insectoid one, the, the three cream. Bicreen. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Um, I've been I've been saying three cream this whole time. I've been making an idiot of myself. Listen, um, there, there's uh, a joke about if it's pronounced GIF or JIF in the Unearthed Arcana, so we can have a sort of three-cream, three-cream debate also. <laughs> GIF don't get to have all Yeah, we're fun. original. <laughs> that I actually started that discussion about whether it is GIF or GIF. It was um, you! Uh, uh, with someone else earlier. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> I was just tweeting it everywhere to, to so anarchy. Um, the gift being a race that that what what was the supplement they were in? Were they in Xanathars or Mordenkainens as a non-playable mm -hmm. race? Mordenkainens. Um, and they're from um, Spelljammers. Yep. Yep. We got it in one. Sean and James. We got it in one. So these are like these are all races that are a throwback to Spelljammers, right? Which is an older. Um, 
setting, kind of an astral setting in the the space, the astral plane, if you will. Um, well, it's not which the astral plane, if I space. remember right. Spelljammer was before my time, uh, but it takes place kind of in what's the word we have for it? it uh, these days, it's mm-hmm. realm space, right? Kind of the the emptiness between the crystal spheres that make up the various material planes. Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> Sean, is it is it stereotyping you if I ask funny, you for help? Uh, oddly listening? enough, <laughs> no, yeah, uh, no. I want to, to do the, the old same guy. Thing. I get it. <laughs> oddly enough. I was not a huge Spelljammer fan only because I stopped playing towards the end of second edition. And that's when all the Spelljammers and the Planescapes and the Dark Suns came out. So I missed the sweet spot of that. It was actually a little after my time, (laughs) believe it or not, uh, that that these came out. So the lore of it is something that escapes me, although the feel of it, uh, is something that I'm looking forward to, possibly. So we, because usually when they do these unearthed arcanas, sometimes it tends to kind of hint that that something may be coming because they they tend to to crop up in later supplements. Um, it, it's good that we're all on a level playing field here, Sean, because I'm I, obviously in my my kind of hoping that you would jump in and save me at some point, blundering through spell jam as it comes from. Um, but I think you're right that that kind of like you know. Um, sense of pirate ships in no but it's not is it i'm thinking of astral plane again it's all just mixing up in my head it's not pirate ships in space it's spaceships in space it's it's a it's a very weird sort of mix right because Spelljammer is this very 3d sort of sci-fi-ish supplement i, I think the reason why Spelljammer Spelljammer historically was not a popular setting. It was one with a lot of gumption, mm. but it w- wasn't one that a lot of people bought, I believe, is the reason why Wizards has always been kind of hesitant to republish Spelljammer. Um, but the main way it worked is that there was a thing called a Spelljamming helm. Uh, not a helm like a helmet, but like the helm of a ship, right? And a right. Spellcaster would, would stand at the helm, and they would... Uh, Actually, I think the helm is typically like a throne. So they would sit within the helm and they would kind of channel their spell slots into the ship and it, it would go through this very sort of outer space environment. And these ships had all different kind of looks to them. Like there was a sort of classic three-masted sailing ship look, but like the Mind Flare Nautiloids that we've seen recently in the Baldur's Gate 3 trailer uh, originate in Spelljammer. And there's all sorts of weirdos. Uh, Spelljammer was a really weird setting, uh, which... Uh, I think it's to its credit. Uh, I, I love when people just do off the wall, bonkers, wild fantasy. It's a lot of yeah, fun. Yeah, I mean, you look at this Unearthed Arcana list of races and it's just like, oh, okay, so I guess we're playing Guardians of the Galaxy now. Like, we're all just going to be wildly <laughs> different aliens. It's interesting that we get this very diverse story, but with a diverse story comes diverse mechanics. So every fan out there who's going mm-hmm. oh yay that's good that you're getting what you want but always be careful what you wish for because melding mechanics and melding story is always a challenge and that's what this uh unearthed arcana article is introducing us to it's not just the flavor and the fun of it but also the mechanics that may be going along with it so it's fun to pay attention to all aspects of this new content mm. Yeah, I started working on like a little sci-fi um, 
you know, we, we wanted to play a sci-fi game and I know this is kind of the backwards way to go about it, but, but I started hacking into 5e because it was a system all my friends knew, so we didn't have to learn a new system. And then when you realize that science fiction, you know, changes the game so much because it becomes about ranged combat, especially if you're going into, you know, more hard sci-fi sort of Star Trek or Star Wars and, and stripping away parts of the magical elements of it. Um, or even including those, I suppose, in terms of ranged, um, you know, it, it completely changes how 5e functions because that's a game that is built uh, with amazing ranged options, but also to make melee feel just as strong and just as powerful. Um, is, do we know? Because <laughs> I feel like we're, as a crew, we're a bit unequipped to talk about Spelljammers, but is Spelljammers like, is it like guns and and that, and laser pistols and that sort of sci-fi or is it just like fantasy on spaceships there's definitely a lot more sci-fi elements to it like in their Skapok and morden canons uh, you'll see the gif have blunderbusses sure. and uh use all sorts of powder barrels and and powder kegs and all sorts of explosives and that's kind of the gif's whole thing is that they've got this sort of uh british colonial uh penchant for blowing things up with reckless abandon um and that's you know <laughs> that's that's kind of the joke of them these big blundering hippos um but beyond that i, I like you said i we may not be the most spell jammy crew out here i don't know if there are full-on laser pistols and such in the setting right we're gonna have to phone a friend at some point and uh uh, ask the hard questions. We need a Grugna! Dale, when you... <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. When you look at uh, the Unearthed Arcana races, are you excited for a potential Spelljammer setting or are you just, you know, taking these as they are, divorced from Spelljammers? Do you look at these player races and get excited for to include them in your games? I'm, I'm kind of hard I love the gift. I, oh, man, the gif are so cool. And you look at the art of them and it's just like, I want to play this. Why wouldn't I want to play? I want eight NPCs who are gif. I'm glad we've all landed on gif, by the way. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, I'm kind of torn because a, a lot of these races in the Unearthed Arcana I'm looking at and I'm like, that's cool. I want to play that. I want to put that in my game. And then other ones I'm kind of like, ooh, that reminded me that it is Unearthed Arcana and it does need some more playtesting. <laughs> There's just some in there that I'm like, oh, that's that's quite that's quite powerful. That's quite big. Um, so I'm I'm a little I'm a little uh, torn on it, I suppose. During my tenure at D and D Beyond, before I came here to Ghostfire, I uh, one of the articles I wrote was right around the time that Morden Canons came out, and the GIF were kind of making headlines in that book. And so I made a playable GIF race. Uh, that was right around the time I think that James Intercasso and I showed up on Dice Camera Action playing uh, Thunder and Lightning, uh, Paca and Durham, two GIF corporals who showed up around Chris Perkins, uh, you know, bombastic GIF major. And <laughs> they were a lot of fun to play. Uh, but we just used the stat blocks. We just had the CR3 GIF stat blocks from Morden Canons uh, to use. And so I went to be like, okay, well, if we, if we want to have people actually playing GIF, then we've got to give them actual player stats. And um, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say it, but uh, at the risk of sounding conceited, I think I like my GIF more than the one that, was, <laughs> that showed up in Unearthed Arcana. Well, I was actually- I, I think that's I, fine. I was about to say that um, it's interesting. So you, a while back for Unearthed Arcana, also wrote an alternative uh, method of 
using ability bonuses uh, without it being tied mm. to sort of essential uh, racial features, which I that's that's still one of my favorite um, approaches to the issue of essentialized um, uh, ability modifiers. But it, it's interesting to me looking at this unearthed arcana that um, we're stuck in this kind of middle phase where where WotC have decided that they're going to move beyond that uh, that traditional method, but they haven't quite replaced it with something new yet, and so it's just sort of saying, here you go, put ability bonuses wherever you want them. Which is fine. I think I think it's a step in the right direction. The thing that interests me is that we've done that, uh, but we've still got little elements of the racial features applied here that still encourage these kinds. Of, so, so the astral elf, for example, has a couple of abilities in there that encourage you to play a spellcaster rather than a a physical mm. sort of a class. So, so mm. it's these little things that even though we don't have these ability modifiers saying, "Well, you're strong, you're smart." We still have little things that are saying, okay, you can play an astral elf who is a barbarian, but don't do that because that'll completely waste this uh, this other ability that you have. Um, or, you know, GIF, encourage mm. you to play physical sort of martial classes because you get this bonus to your melee damage. So why would you play a GIF wizard? That That's the sort of thing that I did notice while reading this that I was like, oh, that's an interesting, an interesting thing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting is topic a... to get into. Yeah, I, I feel like with animal-like creatures like the GIF, I'm bothered by it less because, like, yeah, they they are hippos. Hippos are huge, and they will bull you over if they hit you. But like that, that bothers me less. And say, if we're talking like, oh yeah, all orcs are gigantic and strong because they're kind of they 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 feel more like human beings. Yeah, huh? That but that, that's still that seems to point. get into the point too of the ability to change the monster types or the, the character types that they discuss in this article where they're getting mm. away from calling everything a humanoid and starting to call things by... Yeah, mm. if you are Thrypreen, mm. you are a monstrosity. You are a monstrosity. And mm. it, that, that's interesting uh, for the reasons that we've just brought up here. Uh, mechanically, it, it changes things, but also it points toward a way of differentiating the races as we knew them from any real world uh, analogous thing. These aren't humanoids, these these are oozes, or these are monstrosities, or these are aberrations. Mm. Uh, they're not humanoids. So I don't know if that's something that's going to stick or if, uh, if they're going to uh, just play around with that because then that changes the rules that as we know them in terms of spells because some spells only affect humanoids mm. so are we go now going to have to go back through every spell mm -hmm. and check and see if mm. we can cast this on a, a thrycreen uh, because a thrycreen is a monstrosity and not a humanoid uh, okay it complicates things in a way that needs to be fixed yeah, mm -hmm. I, I remember a similar ripple effect after um, Theros came out, where a couple of the races in that book are listed as fae rather than, you know, humanoid. And, and everyone was like, wait a minute, wait, 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 mm -hmm. we have to back up for a minute. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. It's interesting. I think that's, I think it's cool though. Like my, my instant thought is you have to be careful if you have like a dump here or something in the party and they cast turn undead uh and you know does a does a cleric dump here or, or revenant or something turn itself if it casts turn undead um is an interesting question but i think that that 
I see. I didn't think of it in terms of, of spells like you know dominate monster or dominate person. I think it's called because they're also different slots of spells, right? I think dominate monster is a much lower spell level. I mean okay. to say it's a much higher. Slot. Much is higher. It? No, you're right. Correct. Yes, yeah. it's the other way around. But it's because it's considered, you know, harder to dominate a monster than a person. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. You you, yeah. you know where I'm going that's, with this, James. Take it away. That's. I mean. Th- I mean. That's. That's the real trick. Is because it, PCs are much more vulnerable to things like dominate person, yeah. whereas dominate monsters is a thing you can take out your your big dragon villains and stuff like that. Uh, mm. there, there's a lot of sort of assumptions of who's playing what that are tied up in the creation of these spells. And it also goes back to the mm. issue that this is an unearthed arcana. Yeah. It is a playtest document. So we can ease off a little bit and let the people playtest and give their feedback and see, find all these corner cases. And mm-hmm. how can you break the fact that Threadcreen have four arms instead of two? Uh, even if you try to design around the fact that they can only hold a light <laughs> weapon in one hand, uh, what else can you hold in, in hands that may cause problems down the line? Uh, can you hold magic items? <laughs> can you wear four rings instead of two? You know, you could go on and on and on. Uh, and all of that needs to be sort of ironed out. I suddenly really want to be a Thrycreen rogue that's, you know, just underneath my cloak. I pull out my, my third arm holding a little crossbow from beneath my cape. Pew! I think these are good Picking problems Picking four locks at right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got a multi-lock door. They all just shick to the side at once. Um, <laughs> I think uh, I think it's a good problem to have, though, right? Like, I, I I don't think it's a problem necessarily what you were saying before, Dale, around ability scores being tied to certain races or specific abilities being tied to certain races. I like races having a bit of a flavor to them. And when I think about it more than my gut instinct, I think, yeah, ability scores probably should be you know, I've heard the term floating ability scores um, or free ability score uh, buffs where, um, you know, it's not tied to the race specifically. So that allows you to play a dwarven wizard or an orcish wizard or whatever, whatever it happens to be. But I don't think, I think maybe in the case of like, let's take something like a tiefling that has its uh, infernal legacy ability. I think that's the one that I'm thinking of where it gets those spell casting traits which are tied to charisma. Um, so if you have floating ability scores and those aren't tied to charisma anymore, uh, or, or you're not putting any points into your charisma, it means that those skills become much less effective. I think that's maybe a problem, but I don't think it's necessarily a problem to have an ability, uh, uh, an ability, a racial trait, mixing up all my words here, a racial trait that, uh, you know, leans towards a wizard if it can still be useful, but in a lesser way for a barbarian. Like I, I like there to be some You've clear activated my distinct trap card. between the row. <laughs> I oh, want no, to talk here we go. about uh oh. Because because we don't have to just do a one way or the other, right? It's it's that's a false dichotomy sure. that we're setting up within our own minds. We're imprisoning ourselves. VJ Harris wrote uh, a very good little supplement called uh, what was it called? It had a long name. An elf and a half-orc had a little baby, um, which was another interesting approach to the question of, you know, essentialized traits that are applied to races. And uh, mm-hmm. their their approach to the the question of features like those um, that that come with the races was to give multiple different um, options that are just like just like the racial rundown in any official book. 
um, that sort of says, you know, speed size, all of these things and the, the cool stuff that you can do and split it into different blocks with different abilities, taking them apart and going, well, this is the one, th these are all the features that would be great for a martial build. These are all the features that would be great for, mm. uh, you know, an intellectual build. These are the ones and, and splitting those up and letting you choose upon character creation, which one of those you're going to use. So if you're going to play like, I don't know, a full elf, you can choose from two of those and stick them together and create an elf. And it, it has a pretty, pretty standard balanced, uh, you know, elf set of features. But if you wanted to be, mm. say, a half orc, you can choose one of the human sets and one of the orc sets and put them together and get yourself a half orc. And you end up with these cool little things where it's like you get some of the stuff from variant human plus, you know, whichever orc features you think are the coolest. And you just, you get to stick them together and be like, this is the character I made. And then ties the rest of it kind of to, um, to backgrounds and upbringings, which uh, I thought was really interesting. I want to throw the name of Arcanist Press's Ancestry and Culture Supplement into the ring as well, which has a lot of work to uh, decouple some uh, interesting racial traits that show up in the 5e system regarding learned abilities rather than ones that are, that are innate, such as like elven weapon training and things like that. And it creates a whole swath of uh, cultural combinations that uh, help to defy I, I guess what we would call sort of cliche fantasy, fantasy cliches of like, you know, the the tribal animistic orcs versus like, okay, well, your, your orc grew up in Waterdeep. So what kind of, what kind of culture were, were they immersed in because of that? Yeah. And uh, it has a similar sort of mix and match feel to what you were talking about, Dale. I think, I think people who are looking for different things out of their fantasy races can probably even mix and match in between the two takes on, on mm -hmm. fantasy races. Yeah, I, I, that's super cool. I don't think that's a trap card, Dale. I think that's a gift card. I don't know. What's the opposite to a trap card? I think that's really cool. I hadn't thought about that a before. Gift and I think, card? Yeah. A, yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean this figuratively, not literally, but like it, it kind of allows you to play with the DNA of your character in a way, right? Where you can kind of, you know, build them. But also from, a little bit literally. You know, almost like ability trees. Also a little bit literally, but like have like ability... Correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're saying is a functional, you know, almost skill trees or skill groupings that you you get a limited, you know, source to draw from based on if you're choosing a half orc, a half elf, a full elf, a, you know, whatever it happens to be. But these traits that you can pull from, you can use to create, you know, something that's fairly unique to to you and your character. Yeah, kind of, but simplified by being tied into bundles. Sort sure, of like, yeah. Yeah. Cool. So no, that, I think that's awesome. but not too complicated. <laughs> uh, speaking of complicated, uh, you know what's really complicated? Dragons. They can fly, they can breathe fire, they've got claws, they've got scales. Um, and recently, I think even over the weekend or late last week, uh, posted on Twitter was the table of contents for the upcoming Fizzbands Treasury of Dragons, which is coming out late October. Um, this seems like a really cool supplement if you like dragons, which I do. I, I didn't mean that to be uh, sardonic in any way. Um, I want to ask, and I'm sorry, Sean, but I'm going to bat it back over to you because what this seems to be drawing on, to my understanding, is like types of dragons that existed in D&D back in earlier editions. I know there used to be a lot more types other than just chromatic and... Um, 
metallic uh have you have you seen the the list of contents and is there anything in there that's exciting you about it? it it's all exciting because this game is called dungeons and dragons not dungeons and trolls uh so <laughs> Some yeah. of the best selling and best written supplements over the years have been the Draconomicon or dragon based uh, supplements. And this one, I'm looking at the table of contents right now, and it, it has just a treasure trove of, no pun intended, of player options, DM options, just great in depth information on, uh, on dragons in general. And if you Remember, you know, Draconomicon from third edition, uh, you're going to see, I assume, some very similar things. Uh, we saw some of these subclasses, I believe, in Unearthed Arcana already, like the Way of the Ascendant Dragon for the Monk and the Drake Warden for the Ranger. I didn't get a chance to go back and look at those Unearthed Arcana articles, but I, you know, I remember people being excited about these options. So... I'm looking forward to all of it. And every for a good DM, for a good creator uh, who's who's motivated, all of this information will lead to great stories, which is mm -hmm. really what D&D is all about and role-playing games are all about in the long run. And so you, it's hard not to get excited as a DM and as a player and as a creator about something like this. For sure. Uh, James, do you have something you're really looking forward to from this book? Oh my gosh, you look at this table of contents, you look at the bestiary yeah. that they have in here. There's so, so much. What could I start with? The Elder Brain Dragon, my two great loves of Mind Flayers and Dragons combined into one, one beautiful, impressive package. Oh my gosh. Um, the, the Horde Scarabs, I love the idea of digging into a dragon's horde and finding a bunch of nasty little tunneling beasties there to leap out at you. Um, I have a huge fondness for the psionic gem dragons, the third sort of category of dragons uh, beside the good metallics, the evil chromatics or the neutral gem dragons in the midst of it. Um, I, I wrote a supplement called Gem Dragons of Faerun for Cobalt Press a couple of years ago where I uh, did my research into Dragon Magazine uh, of, you know, uh, issue 30 or so and like ah the original gem dragons and back into the 3.5 books it's like okay how can we update these cool things for fifth edition um and i've got my sapphire dragon miniature from WizKids. you can't see it it's out of frame but up there on my shelf i mean i i love these guys and i can't wait to see what wizards did for them i know i know it was my my pal dan dylan who did the sapphire dragon stat block for the 45th anniversary D and D thing. Uh, and so I hope, I hope he did the rest <laughs> of them because, uh, he did a really good job back then. I've been really interested to see the, the different take on the, the different gemstone dragons after, cause there's been kind of, you know, little bits here and there of people trying to update the gemstone dragons for 5e. We've seen it in MCDM. We've seen, you know, all these different takes. And I want to, I want to see how different this take mm. is. Well, that's that's the thing I'm really interested to see, too, because for the most part, when I did it, I tried to stay pretty close and true to the original material. But there were a few things where it's like, ah, eh, this doesn't really make sense. So let's change it. Let's take a new take on the old material. Um, I really want to see uh, Wizards kind of do the same thing. I hope that they will stick with something, all the cool stuff of old 
and and rejiggered the stuff. It's like, this doesn't actually make sense now that I think about it. Let's make something cool and new and find a find that perfect marriage of old and new and mm. what they're making now. In, in many ways, I think that's the name of the game for 5e. That's why 5e is so good, is they they do their best to be a perfect marriage of old and new. So hopefully the, the trend continues yeah, yeah. in the general. Yeah, brackets. I'm excited to uh, pull these apart. I mean, as a forever DM, um, my eyes are squarely on the bestiary bestiary more than than anything else specifically within the book but i you know the way that i tend to do dragons within my games is as these like you know massive just you know weapons of incredible power um and do them quite rare so that you, you know it's not my i'm not originating this idea by any stretch a lot of people have talked about it on the internet before but the idea of like it's not a red dragon it's the red dragon or the blue dragon um I really like that idea and having more of those types of unique looking dragons, these sort of elemental almost dragons um, is, is exciting to be able to kind of, you know, if you're running homebrew, especially break out of that whole idea of, of chromatic and metallic being a specific and defined thing. Um, because the first, I don't know if you guys feel the same, but the first thing that happens whenever I introduce a dragon into a game, I'm like, you look up and the, the sky goes dark as the sun is blotted out and something massive sweeps through the air and one player goes, what color is it? And it's like, is it friendly? Is it not? Like that's the, the instant thing they want to know. Um, so being able to play with those expectations a bit. Yeah. In, in earlier editions, dragons were, uh, so sneaky or the capable of being so sneaky and could cast mm. spells and you were more likely like one of the very first dungeon adventures deals with a dragon named flame uh, from dungeon magazine issue one and th there was a series of adventures after that spaced out every few years um, to like celebrate the anniversary of the hundredth edition of, of uh, dungeon magazine and it wasn't like you said, it wasn't oh. look up in the sky and see the dragon. It was this person who just gave you the job. You don't know it, but they're the dragon. And right. they're polymorphed into a human and much more in terms of like the evil mastermind or the good mastermind behind things rather than just this big bag of hit points that breathes fire that you wail on enough and then you get to take it to treasure. Uh, mm. And there's nothing wrong with any of those types of games but you don't want to to just get into a rut of what a dragon is because a dragon can be so many things I'm trying to think who did a video on this i think it was uh overly sarcastic productions who do um like lore and and mythology and history videos but they did a breakdown on dragons and were like you know people have a you you, you see those things online and it's like no 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 this is a wyvern this is a drake this is a you know and try to give it these really specific breakdowns if it doesn't have four legs and wings it's not a dragon but it's like <laughs> You know, anything can be a dragon can look like anything like look at, you know, oriental dragons and they don't have wings at all. And, I, you know, I'm, I I was so inspired by watching Spirited Away one time that I was like, yeah, that's going straight into my campaign um, because I think that's just really evocative and cool and, and unexpected um, for people who are playing typical Dungeons and Dragons or, or um, you know, we're used to sticking with the monster manual in, in the way that it is. Um, yeah. And I, oh, I just from a mythological perspective, I will say you're absolutely right. Like European dragons as well. You have mm. the worms, which are basically snakes with four legs. You've got Greek dragons, which were basically giant snakes. You know, you've got 
such a broad range of what dragons look like. You know, a bunch of Norse dragons mm. have antlers, all these things. Um, dragons can look so many different ways. That's part of why I love that idea of like the red dragon, the worm, the so-and-so. I like those those unique dragons and giving them all just totally wildly different appearances. That's something that I get joy from because I love mythology. It's also a, a fun thing to do, which I, 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 I admit I got out of The Witcher. I brought it up this week. Um, but there's a quest in The Witcher where like a townsperson goes like, uh, go kill this dragon. There's a dragon over by this tower. And you go and it's like a fork tail or, you know, some other definition of beast and not a dragon. But it's kind of fun playing with players' expectations like that as well because, you know, I'll have some townsfolk person at early levels be like, oh, there's a dragon up there. You've got to go kill it. And it's like a griffin when they actually go in or, or a, you know, chimera or something when they actually go and see it. But it's cool because it, it subverts expectations but gets the players um you know, really excited as well, but they feel like sick monster hunters when they're like, no, nah, it's not a dragon trust as whether we're the professionals. I, I have a question uh, regarding kind of the, the broadness of dragons as a category within D and D. And I've, I remember thinking this back when the third edition Draconomicon came out, a book, which I love because I love dragons and I'm feeling a twinge of this now looking at this. Um, it's kind of like, a. a worry I have in spite of myself. And it's about the kitchen sink fantasy approach to big settings like the Forgotten Realms. D&D is a very wide game that has a lot of breadth to it, that people can pick and choose what they like. But when there is a default setting to D&D, in this case, the Forgotten Realms, uh, often that default setting has to contain just an untenable weight of mythology for so many different types of dragons. Do you have any thoughts on how you would solve a problem like this when dealing with so many different types and variations of creatures when typically there's 10 that everyone know really well, five metallics, five chromatics, and suddenly you just bust the doors open. Here's a million different types of other new dragons that have just kind of been lurking in the shadows, not really making any sort of stink of import uh, for most of history. I mean, it's a tricky question, right? Because because there's already that sort of, like, I, I feel like we get this kind of, um, this snowball effect with a lot of things in, in the sort of default setting of D&D 5e. Because, you know, when we have things like Thrycreen show up, in the monster manual and they're just a monster and then this far down the line we go but also you can play as them also they are a playable race you know you have these questions that start coming about from those things and i i guess it's it's trickier for for people who are really running from this official material because for someone like me my my thing my go-to is homebrew so i'm already picking mm. and choosing and going well i think well, that's that the easy answer these yeah. are cool the, i like this one i like that i don't like that one so much that one's not going to be part of my world you know um so <laughs> the easy answer is just be a homebrew dm um which is yeah. not helpful at all um <laughs> but i suppose we're getting to <laughs> but, but but that's the answer that 99 of people should take right yeah get into homebrewing it's fun you'll enjoy it um but yeah, I don't know. I suppose, I suppose we're at such a breadth of material now, official material, that every DM is having mm. to pick and choose what's in their mm. game anyway. Even if it's down to like, do you include, uh, you know, Eberron 
as mm. a as a as a book or do you decide to leave it to the side do you do you run dragon heist do you not because the adventures that you choose uh, are going to inform what is in your world and your your players can only you know imagine so much of this one particular mm. world to a certain degree you, you're just you're having to pick and choose anyway so you may as well embrace it go all the way which dragons which dragons do you as want? a designer i beg and plead dms to please take what i've written and do something different with it because mm. as a designer we can't write for everyone and i I don't mind criticism, but the hardest criticism is I don't like this because I cannot write for every thing that everyone likes because people <laughs> like diametrically opposed things. Uh, so even if you're not a homebrew DM in the sense that you are creating your own world, you should be a homebrew DM in the sense that you are taking these adventures and making them your own, making them special yeah. to the players that you have at the table. And that's the most important skill that you can have i think as a dm is to be willing and able to step outside of the words on the page and tell the stories that you need to tell and that your players want to tell and isn't it one of the greatest joys of like like when you first get the monster manual i know that i did this maybe it's just me but i i sat down and i flipped through and i looked at all the pictures and all the names and i went i like this i like that i want to use that one I will, i'll have two of those you know and you don't use everything but you just go you get inspired and i think looking at this this table of contents that's what i'm most excited for for fizz buns is this idea of like look at this beastery we're going to be able to flip through this thing and just go ah i'm so inspired and just just pick the things that make us want to create make us want to build adventures and build the yeah. world yeah like for instance somewhere here in the bestiary are dragon flesh grafters people who will take bits of dragon body and magically right right onto their own flesh and honestly for most campaigns that's a little gruesome for me but the, right now right in this moment i'm playing a campaign where there are these powerful demons that take the form of dragons and many of them have uh, raised these mighty cults uh, around them. And I think, oh, I hope none of my players are listening to this. <laughs> and their cults surely must be like, oh my God, yes, we shall become closer to uh, to this being by putting, you know, scales all over us and have just, just get a wing on there and have it go out. I mean, how how messed up is that? I love it. For this specific concept that might not work in mm. everyone else's camp. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, Dungeon Masters, Game Masters shouldn't feel like they need to incorporate everything exactly like, you know, Dale and Sean were saying because I'm personally not a fan of the Forgotten Realms, at least for my own games, and it's only because the Forgotten Realms being the standard or the, the fifth edition sort of standard D&D &D setting has to be everything to everyone has to kind of include everything that they they create things for and when something becomes everything flavored it kind of becomes nothing flavored because it's just a paste of of everything and i'm not saying that i think the forgotten realms is a paste but um <laughs> what i mean to say is that like yeah you you when you especially if you're homebrewing you create expectations around in your world and i say to players i'm like if i don't mention it or it hasn't come up yet you can roll a history check to see if it exists or assume it doesn't exist rather than assuming it does or assume you don't know what it is rather than assuming it does. And this can create great expectations, especially um, 
if you're running like a low fantasy, low magic setting where the most magical thing they come across is a griffin and a and a troll and something like that. So that when a dragon or God's forbid you just throw mind flayers into a campaign kind of randomly do crop up, they seem so alien and so different to everything else that the players have experienced so far that it's not just like, oh yeah, no, we've seen a mind flayer before. We know what that is. You know, there's a there's a bartender down the street who who's a mind flayer. Um, so not surprised. Um, I think that that you know is kind of how you you tackle that question of of you know how much do you include? For me, very little of it, honestly, until it it, it shows up yeah. in the campaign, basically. Um, Cool. All right. Jumping right along. Um, that being uh, the news that we've had for the week, we're going to jump into a quick discussion here about variant tools used in uh, tabletop RPGs, whether it's Dungeons and Dragons or other tabletop RPGs. Um, a lot of these can be used in, in Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and by variant tools, I don't so much necessarily mean variant mechanics, um, but specifically, you know, it doesn't have to be a physical thing, but, but specifically something that, that is quite different from, um, you know, the, 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 the typical sort of dice that you might, or the way that dice are used in, let's say fifth edition D and D or something like that. As I start to talk this out loud, I'm like, well, you know, what is typical when you start to look beyond just the bounds of fifth edition D and D, um, because there are so many different types of games. Um, Dale, you had one of these that you really liked, which was the, the prompt cards. Do you want to talk a little bit about those? Yeah, well, I was just, I was just thinking recently about, um, of course, Alice is missing, uh, has taken the tabletop RPG world by storm. Um, and I've seen a couple of other games since, you know, outside of the, uh, the sort of typical traditional D20 fantasy uh, style games that are, that are using these sort of prompt cards that guide and encourage role play. Um, much more directly than sort of, I feel like the D20 system is very hands-off with role play, right? You know, it says, you're in a tavern, go. Um, and it's it's up to you to remember how uh, to converse. Um, whereas, you know, we're, we're seeing these games and in particular Alice is missing that say, this is the situation, you have to include this and this, now talk. Um, and Alice is missing is maybe an extreme example because the entire the entire game is is role play rather than role play with a double l um but uh but yeah that that was one that uh struck me in particular as being quite new um quite modern as a take but i i wondered other people's thoughts and other people's thoughts on other sort of um key elements to tabletop rpgs that aren't part of the sort of d20 system loop that we see a lot of the time i i, I tell my students in my role-playing game class that you know, role-playing games are just storytelling with a machine that tells you what do you input and what is the outcome. And, you know, we, we could make a game where you, we play rock, paper, scissors, and whoever wins gets to add seven words to the story, and then we play rock, paper, scissors again, and whoever wins adds seven words to the story. And that's a role-playing game uh, if, we, if we take on a role and and each try to bend the story to where we want it to be. So I mean, anything that acts as that machine, that mechanic that tells us how the outcome is going to be transformed into a narrative, you can use it in role-playing games. You know, dice are what we're most used to because they are 
one of the easiest uh, mechanical bits with which to manipulate and get different outcomes. But we have games that use uh, playing cards. We have games that use tarot cards. We have games that use Jenga towers. We have games that use mm. practically any way you can get a random outcome, it's there. And it's it's incredibly fun to think of different ways to to use these randomizers to interact with with the story. And now I want to hear what James had to say. I was just here to talk about role playing games that use Jenga towers. <laughs> um, I it, it feels old hat to me, but I'm I'm deep deeply mired in the industry of role playing games. I'm sure there's going to be someone listening to this who hasn't heard of Dread before. The uh, landmark horror RPG that uses a Jenga tower and pulling from it as its primary uh, conflict resolution system. Uh, I think I think when we when we talk about tools, Ben, uh, that translates into game designer ease in my mind as yeah. conflict resolution systems because a game uh, a role playing game to me is you know freeform storytelling until you don't need it to be. Uh, freeform storytelling until there is a situation that arises in which there's a level of uncertainty that can uh, best be resolved through the ability of the characters in the fiction and not the ability for the players in real life to tell uh, a story. And obviously, in, in a totally freeform way, we could just tell the story with no conflict resolution system. That's fine. Um, maybe not fine if you have a conflict directly between <laughs> two players then then you might need something else but uh you know conflict that a that a game master proposes and a player must overcome honestly if you wanted to have a game where uh, a game master said here's a challenge how do you overcome it and the goal of the game is to come up with increasingly wild and woolly ways to overcome a challenge this is like a pretty rad role-playing game to me, honestly, in a kind of absurdist mad magazine way. I'd have fun playing that game. Um, but I, I guess I don't really have a have much of a point here other than to say using a Jenga tower or other weird ways of resolving a conflict uh, is a lot of fun. Dice are standard, but uh, there's there's uh, so many more ways than dice. And as a game designer, you're limiting yourself by only yeah, considering Yeah, I, I agree with that. Although I don't think we're like, I don't think we're just talking about conflict resolution tools. Like I think the Jenga Tower is a cool tool that, that allows you to resolve conflict. And Dread is a, a really cool game. We played it one night, like with all the lights turned out and candles on and the Jenga Tower in the middle of the living room. And they were shrieking when it finally fell. Um, it's a really great game. But I think, like, correct me if I'm wrong, Dale, I, I haven't played it, but I did have a look at Alice is Missing. And it also, not that Alice is Missing does, but this conversation kind of reminds me of a game called Fiasco, which is a really great uh, one-night role-playing game. And Fiasco doesn't use cards. I think it's like in a, in a scenario book. But what it's giving you isn't necessarily like a way to resolve an encounter, but gives you like prompts that will move the story forward um, in a way. So it's kind of like, you know, uh, in, you know, you've just stolen a million dollars in, in diamonds um, and you're trying to escape, but then you look at the scenario and it says, you know, uh, there is going to be a glorious self self-annihilation in this uh you know circumstance um where you are just going to gloriously self-destruct and ruin yourself 
in the next scene. That has to happen. Um, and so you have to incorporate that into how you move the story forward. That's almost like it almost gives you the the challenge more so than the resolution necessarily um, uh, to step forward. Uh, what were you going to say? Sorry, Dale. Oh, well, I mean, just to answer what you were saying just then. Um, so Fiasco is a really interesting comparison, actually, because now I, I hadn't thought of it before. Now that I'm stopping and thinking about it, I suppose the difference if there is one, uh, the perceived difference that I'm I'm perceiving is um, that Fiasco kind of does it on on a much more sort of incremental mm. basis, right? Like you've got this overarching thing. This is the direction the story is going. These are who the people are. These, you know. But when you do individual scenes, it says, you know, this scene is going to go well for you. Mm. This scene is going to go poorly for you. These are the elements of the scene. And it kind of really, you know, breaks it up into and it, it does this deliberately to kind of replicate a film sort of structure. Whereas Alice is Missing is sort of um, much more free form sort of uh, uh, stream of consciousness. It all, all, for people who aren't familiar, Alice is Missing by Spencer Stark. Um, it, it takes place entirely via text message. So you have 90 minutes where you and your friends who are playing the game don't speak, you only speak via text message. And the, and the conceit of the game is that um, none of you are in, are together in person, you are all distant enough that you have to be communicating via a sort of group chat but um it it gives you just motivations at the start it sort of says your character is you know fiercely defensive of alice and all of her behavior while someone else will get a motivation card that says you're mad at alice you you she did something you know reckless just before she went missing and you know, you are a little bit angry at her. Um, and so you end up with these conflicts that are caused by the prompt cards because it's it's giving you just little things so that when someone says, oh, I'm mad at Alice, you say, how mm. dare you say that? Um, because you've been told that that's who your character is. It just gives you these little guidelines at the beginning. And it does have these sort of um, overarching elements that the mystery story um, is sort of progressed as you go along drawing cards. But um, on the whole, I suppose you you have these these prompts for the role play at the mm. very top. And what I was going to say before is that what we're seeing through this discussion is how abstract the concept of role play, <laughs> playing a role, can be. Right? I I played Microscope for the first time the other night, and I had my doubts that it was really a role playing game. I thought it's a world building game, sure, but in what way can it be role playing? And then we did a scene where I I role played the concept of time, and I was you know the the fervent crowd outside the doors chanting to see the king and i was like oh no this is a role play game with with very little in the way of mechanics um to touch on that but it you know it facilitates these yeah. moments yeah with microscope you have to get far enough into the game to get to the role playing part because the beginning <laughs> is so much world building that some people quit after a while and say oh i built my world but there is a lot of role playing and a lot of decision making that needs to be uh, sussed out between the players to get to the stories that are underlying the world you're building. So, you know, that's a great example. See, I've never gotten there. Can we play Microscope together? Well, we have to amazing. play Alice Please. is Missing first. <laughs> then we can play yeah. Fiasco. Then yeah. we can play Microscope because that's it would the, be the awesome next... with this group. <laughs> yeah, the next evolution of the Eldritch Law cast is us uh, doing live plays of different one-shot uh, game styles. Um the, the other thing just quickly, just in terms of like tools that, that Fiasco brings that I, I haven't, but I've always wanted to incorporate at the start of a fifth edition campaign, especially if you're having a, a party that is supposed to be 
um, kind of pre-baked and they came together is this idea of a relationship kind of map where I think in, it's been years since I've played Fiasco, so I could get this wrong, but I think the idea is you have to establish a relationship with the person sitting on your left and the person sitting on your right. And Dale, you might remember more than me, does it provide like um, prompts in terms of like this person is your enemy and you have to decide why they're your, you, you, you are rivals and this person is your best friend, this person is a family member. Um, and so it helps you build role play incentives through uh, establishing these relationships with the other characters at the table from the very start of the game, um, rather than sort of throwing you in the deep end and saying, all right, now off you go. The other thing I think it helps in, in a fifth edition context is very much like sometimes you can start a campaign with brand new players and they all have a very strong idea of who their character is when they come in. But then all the characters kind of thematically run in different directions because somebody wants to play a really jovial, upbeat, um, you know, uh, 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 clowning sort of character and the other person is, their parents are dead and they're really sad about, you know, everything, which those two things can fit together in the same campaign, but sometimes it, it can take a little bit of kind of adjusting if you don't have those relationships pre-established. Yeah, I, I mean, I love ripping these systems out of, of some games and putting them in others. I absolutely wrote my own custom fiasco relationships list for, for Dungeons and Dragons as a general sort of, or, or I suppose traditional fantasy settings rather than specifically Dungeons and Dragons. Absolutely, I've done that. Um, basically, the way the system works, and it's, it's, it's a little bit more complex, so I won't get into it too much, but it is fascinating the way it works because it lets you kind of decide collectively different things. So you can say, okay, well, I've decided that our relationship will be familial. We, we are blood relatives. And the other person can say, ah, but I see in this list that one of the options is step parent and stepchild. I think that that's actually <laughs> our relationship. And you kind of collaborate on these little things and you end up with these, these very peculiar little um, sort of intertwining relationships all the way across the table mm. in a web. And something that I would love to see used in D&D uh, along the lines of, of Alice is Missing or what I've read of it is to have complications spring up that are random for players that, they, that they're not expecting. And I'm not talking about a critical fail table. You know, I'm talking just about a card gets flipped over and there's something about your character that maybe hasn't changed but you now have to take this into account in your character's personal life or in terms of their psyche or in terms of something about the character's non-mechanical makeup that mm. gives the player some, some grist for their role-playing mill that would otherwise be lacking in a game that doesn't have a mechanic for that. Because it can be, it can be really hard to, um, to role-play mm. in a void, to just be thrown in and go, okay, well, you are... A rogue, you're a hardened, you know, street urchin. Go, and you're like, Bleh. because you know, you, <laughs> I you think just you're. Don't have the oh, go ahead. No, no, please. I, I think if you've got, uh, if you're a D and D player primarily, uh, and you have access to Tasha's or to Eberron, the group patrons uh, in in that book are a really good option. Mostly because I feel like, like we were talking about with Fiasco and pre-existing character relationships role-playing games are at their best when the characters know each other mm. just a little bit before things happen right because and and this is just my opinion you may disagree with this uh but 
there, there's two things that I think are very true about RPG characters. One, you should discover 90% of who they are in play. Plan for, plan for some of them at the beginning, enough to give you a really solid like anchor to grip onto and keep them consistent and have you know who you're playing, but then discover uh, in the moment and have fun with it. And then two, uh, some of that 10% or even another 10%, right? Stack 10% more backstory into it should be with the other characters. There's not a story in existence uh, that that isn't improved by by people having some kind of pre-existing relationship. And they don't have to know each other. They don't have to know each other exactly, but there has to be some spark, something that sparks between two characters, a little bit of conflict or a little bit of uh, a bit of harmony, something that immediately touches off. And that's where the interest mm. of a story as, comes from. As hard as it is to DM a group of players who don't, who are trying to role play and avoid, it's sometimes even worse when you sit down with a bunch of strangers to run a game and they all have such strong character concepts that are going in 10 different directions. Um, mm. Because then everyone, instead of no one mm -hmm. saying anything, everyone is just talking over each other and you're not moving in the direction you need to move to tell a story. And that's where I think everyone has been moving in this direction to have a focus at the end of the role-playing tunnel to get everyone moving in the same direction, then you are making progress rather than having this could be possibly really funny and fun, but not necessarily cogent or coherent story that the characters are telling together. Yeah. Cool. Uh, well, just before we wrap up here today, we did get an email through. Uh, if you want to keep the conversation going, uh, shoot us an email, podcast at ghostfiregaming.com. Um, we did get one through. This email comes from Casey from Adelaide, which is uh, an Australian city, uh, if you're listening to us from outside of Australia. Casey says, hi, everyone. Enjoyed the first episode of the Eldritch Lawcast. Can't wait to see more episodes release. There was a recent petition after 5.5e, which is what we called it, uh, was announced asking Wizards of the Coast to create a version of the new D&D rule set in the metric system instead of the current imperial measuring system. Do you think this would be useful to you as a GM player, uh, kind of asking Dale that question, I suppose, and myself? Uh, or do you prefer slash don't mind the current measuring system would you rather have five feet squares or combat in roughly 1.8 meter squares? They put a link to the um, Kickstarter, uh, Kickstarter, to the petition, uh, which is 5,000 signatures so far of 7,500. Uh, what do we think, Dale? Do we think we need a metric version of the game? My gut instinct was do it just for spite. Um, but, but of course, uh, if I was to actually stop and consider it mechanically, I don't, I don't, I don't know what kind of impact it would have on my game. It doesn't bother me using um, feet, and well, I guess it bothers me a little bit using miles. But using feet, I can, I can generally grasp. But I have started doing a thing where I, my players don't. Um, seem to engage with battle as much if there's a battle map okay. in front of them. I've noticed they do really well with theater of the mind, but less well with with a battle map. But um, but then it becomes difficult if you if you're you know dealing with spells and stuff in terms of feet. And I'm like, 
I don't know how far 20 feet looks like. So describing it to you who also doesn't know what 20 feet looks like is a little bit difficult. So maybe swapping to meters would actually be really helpful. I wouldn't go with 1.8 meter. I would just go straight to two meters. <laughs> Uh, also because two is a really easily multipliable number yeah. for those of us who are mathematically challenged. Um, I don't know, maybe it would be useful. I had, I had genuinely not considered it See, until now. The funny thing is, and, and I think this is like a, an American culture osmosis is that I think really well in inches and feet because I played war games as a teenager, like uh, all the games workshop stuff. I do in terms even of though, height. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Even though Games Workshop is a British company, all of their measurements, uh, at least in the older editions, I don't know what it's like today, but they're all in inches and feet. So I like I can measure in my mind like one foot, six inches really easily. I have no idea how long 10 centimetres is, right? Um, so uh, there was actually uh, The Witcher. They uh, they did it in metres and it was like three metre squares, I think. When uh, Or I think, sorry, now, because it was years ago, I did this. it's not as easily multipliable. I think <laughs> they did meters and I put it into three meter squares because that's what made sense to me playing it on the grid. James, uh, Sean, what do you think? In a game that has decided that Pythagoras was a punk, uh, I don't know if changing units of measurement matters at all. Uh, and I want to know, are those 5,000 signatures, is that metric or imperial? That's for metric. <laughs> okay, five thousand metric signatures. I um, just wanted to make sure. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I definitely have some bias because I, I do use feet and etc. in my in my regular life. Uh, so it's like just it make a difference to me because I only know metric in terms of scientific measurements. Um, I, I generally know how long a meter is. I can imagine that in my head. So it's that's not a problem. When I start thinking of okay, what's what's five meters? What does that look like? Well, Dale, I have the same problem as you. I have no idea what five meters look like offhand. Uh, that's, no, I, I couldn't even give you a vague sort of like, that's as long as a quarter of a football field. Sort of that means nothing to me. <laughs> uh, but, but it does make me wonder for European versions of the game in other languages mm. than English, like the, the European, like a French or a German translation of D&D, which is coming out right now. That was one of the things I talked about D&D Celebration is uh, foreign language versions of the player's handbook. Do they do conversions or do they use five feet? I don't know. Well, it goes beyond just like distant measurements, right? It goes into like weight capacity and, and you know, how much, how much is in a potion, um, mm. all that sort of stuff as well, which I don't know if it, if it really matters who, who uses encumbrance rules anyway. Um, I mean that jokingly. Maybe I would if I could understand how much things <laughs> yeah, weigh. Yeah, what's an LB? Ben? Did you consider <laughs> that? LB? I, I have no, because isn't that pounds? I don't know. Anyway, why it is, is it LB? Mm -hmm. It is. It is. It's a pound. I don't know. And I don't oh, know how much a pound weighs. I, it's the Romans' fault, as we can say for many things in this world. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, uh, or joining us, I should say. I was talking to the other host when I said me, but thank you, viewers, for joining us. Um, if you want to keep the conversation going, our Twitter handles are just below. If you're watching this on YouTube, if you're not, you can still reach us by emailing podcast at ghostfiregaming.com. Ask us a question like Casey did start. Uh, an international dispute uh, between the, the hosting groups. Uh, we'd love it. It would be great. 
um, uh, podcast at ghostfiregaming.com. Don't forget to subscribe if you're watching us on YouTube or uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Um, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and just generally spread rumors in taverns. Let people know that the Eldritch Lawcast is here to stay. We are your new favorite tabletop RPG. I've been Ben Byrne here with Dale Kingsmill, Sean Merwin, James Hake, and we will catch you all next time.